0: Did you hear the story about the working-class bloke who became a university professor and was then expected to change his behaviour to fit in? Well, of course, that bloke's me. Let me tell you about what happened to me at a literary festival a few years ago. I'd just done a talk to promote my first book, Happiness by Design, when I was approached by a stranger who said he'd loved the book but wondered why I had to play the working-class hero. He said, you do it in your book and you're doing it now, as he was literally pointing me up and down. I was dressed as a chimney sweep and singing Chim -chim Chimney Chim Charoo, I really wasn't. So I had no idea what he was talking about. He told me that when you reach a certain level, you should modify your behaviour. That I shouldn't swear and that I should be setting a better example as a professor at the LSE to those who looked up to me. Was he right? Should I drop my so-called working class behaviours because I'm now middle class? Is it only about income, occupation employment or is there more to it than that? What was really behind what he said? Is it also a matter of taste? does class even matter anymore? Are we now a classless society? Or are we still, as George Orwell famously said, the most class-ridden society under the sun? I'm Paul Dolan, a professor of behavioural science at the London School of Economics, and this is the Duck Rabbit Podcast. I've spent years researching human behaviour and happiness, I know what it makes to make us feel good, but now I'm interested in whether our polarised culture might be making us feel bad. I want to see if I can find a way through all of this so that we can move away from entrenched views towards more ambivalence or in the very least greater acceptance of difference. Today, I want to look at whether class is fundamental to how we see ourselves or whether we might even want a class of society. And these issues really matter to me personally. They were really brought to my attention when I wrote a piece for The Guardian about what makes me happy. I was variously called chav People questioned whether I should be a professor and there was quite a lot of piss-taking about me big telly. Class seems to provoke such a huge reaction in people. Now I want to dig deeper. I'm going to be joined by two very different people. The first, Lily russell Stracy, went to an exclusive boarding school and a top university. Instead of taking her parents' expected career path into a middle-class profession such as finance, she's actually now a plumber in Glasgow. The other person is Dr. Vanda Viporska. She's executive director of the Equality Trust. She comes from a working-class background and was raised by a single mum. She's from Chester and went to Oxford University after winning a scholarship at the local independent school. She says she was desperate to be middle class, and it's what motivated her to study. What do you think of these two, and how do you judge them? My mate Rory Sutherland is joining me again. He puts all the academic work I do on behavioural science into practice in his job as vice-chair of Ogilvy, a big advertising agency. What do you think about these comments made about me when I wrote a piece for The Guardian about what makes me happy?
1: I actually grew up in a middle class household where not only was the television kept in a completely separate room, but it was in black and white until I was about 19. And I reacted against this and I've become a lifelong big telly convert. I also agree with you, by the way, that denigrating other people's pleasures is generally a nasty form of class or status signal. Because I, I really like KFC, okay? Now, if you said that in middle-class circles, everybody would have to react with obligatory expressions of horror. But it's a great food. And I do envy nouveau riche people who enjoy money in a way that's completely uninhibited. You know, I bet having two bottles of champagne in a hot tub with a Cohiba cigar, I bet that's a real blast. The fear of what other people right. will think constrains your ability to enjoy your wealth. Why would you do that?
0: Yeah, I think we'll come back to this issue of taste and class shortly, Rory, but let's first hear from our WhatsApp group.
2: I see myself as someone who was brought up in a working-class environment. I now live in an outwardly middle-class environment, economically and socially, but I still feel in a very basic sense that I am and always will be working class.
1: I think those people that attended those high-end public schools like Windsor and Eton tend to have that elitist attitude. And I think people like uh, myself, if you like, we've just got to learn that confidence and make sure that we drive that through in our lives.
3: I think there are people who are like maybe culturally middle class, but like economically insecure, for example. And it's because class, I think particularly in the UK, is
2: such a like all encompassing thing. The upper class, I think, is like a gated section of society.
4: And even if you go there and you're invited, you might not be very welcome.
0: I think that many of the social and political divisions that exist in the UK can be reduced to issues of class. Certainly, um, if you look at the strange game of identity politics that's being played out as we speak, that can be reduced to the metropolitan middle class, lecturing the working class of this country. So that's our WhatsApp group, Rory. What do you make of what they are to say?
1: Yeah, I mean... It's interesting because I think people who've migrated from one class to another do have a kind of sixth sense that they're conscious of what they've gained, but they're also conscious of what they've possibly lost. And one thing that always occurs to me about people who've only been middle class is you know, every now and then I ask myself the question, what would it be like to be a truck driver? You know, actually, I reckon in some respects it'd be kind of fun, it'd be more enjoyable than what I do now. And one thing I notice about some middle class people is it's never occurred to them that their aspirations may be externally imposed. They just think, you know, this is what success looks like. If I don't obey these rules, I've basically failed.
0: Yeah, well, listen. I think it's interesting because I've obviously transitioned from a, a working class background to a middle class occupation, and and I'm acutely aware of the costs and benefits that that's you know brought. That and on balance, has it been a good thing? Well, probably, but I'm certainly aware of what I've had to sacrifice in order to to some large degree fit into the middle class occupation that I'm in now. Let's hear from Lily Russell Stracey. She's the person I told you about who went to a 40 grand a year boarding school.
3: I absolutely loved it. The fact that I was like sleeping overnight there was just such a cool thing. I'd never like done that before. I remember like when I started that I just didn't want to go home on the weekend. I just wanted to stay at school like the whole time. (laughs) That's how (laughs) much I liked it. Yeah.
0: And it was like that the whole way through?
3: Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, there was always like something fun going on. Yeah, no, it was great. And
0: then you went to university afterwards?
3: Yeah, so I didn't really know what I wanted to do, so I just thought, this at least gives me time for three years to delay that. Um, so when I was still at Bristol, one of my flatmates' boyfriends was doing plumbing at college. He just said, oh, yeah, you should do plumbing. Like It's not, it's not that difficult. You don't need to be particularly strong. From that point, I was like, right, I'm going to be a plumber.
0: <laughs> so now you're a plumber. You're living, where are you, where are you living now? Glasgow. Obviously.
3: when I moved here I started doing a full-time plumbing course and um and over the over the summer last summer I was just sending emails to like every single plumber like sole trader and big company so I was just about to give up looking because I was just getting the same answers either like no reply or we're not taking anyone on, or we've still got half our proper yeah. staff furloughed. You know, you can't have two people in a van at the moment, all that kind of stuff. The last kind of round of emails that I sent out, um, I just sort of yeah you know, pressed send to like sixty or seventy companies or something crazy, and then like the next day my phone rang and this guy was just on the phone, um, but he just said, "I've just." Been having a look at some of the emails that you've sent over the last five months. And I quite like to have a chat with you and meet you. And we just met for like a coffee or something and just kind of chatted. And then like three days later, they offered me a job.
0: Amazing. And you're enjoying it. Yeah, love it. <laughs> so are they, do you think uh, your old man are going to work and talk about his daughter, the plumber,
3: to mm. his mates in work? So the two years before I actually became a plumber or whatever it's weird to actually say like that I'm a plumber now it's just like yeah. strange oh, that's right. <laughs> um if I was talking to their friends about it like oh you know I think I want to get a trade because it's a job for life it's tangible mm-hmm. work you're actually doing something you're not just mm-hmm. like firing out emails and you know but yeah they would say they'd all say that's amazing you should do that so that was really encouraging to hear that from their friends like well, you know someone thinks it's a good idea they think it's a good idea maybe they wouldn't want their own kid to be doing it but you know they they think it's a good idea so why don't you think it's a good idea <laughs> um, yeah
0: nice it's, it's interesting that it might be a good idea for other people's kids but not for mine right um but i wonder how how did the clients uh take you i just i mean even seeing your name come up here lily russell stracy i mean it's already <laughs> double barrel for god's sake i mean you're every stereotype of a post girl I know. Um, how, do, how, does, how, how are you sort of taken by the clients?
3: I think actually the fact I'm in Glasgow helps because I don't think they can tell like how posh I am. When, oh, I see. I'm yeah, kidding. when they get the text that says, Lily's on the way, they're like, a girl? They're like, what the hell? Um, so, that's, yeah, that yeah, thing Yeah, I guess comes... that's the
0: biggest shock. It doesn't really matter what your accent is once yeah, they've yeah. seen that you're a woman. No,
3: exactly. <laughs>
0: One of the things that I've... Been alert to having, in a sense, in terms of the social hierarchy, gone in the opposite direction, coming from a working class background into a middle class occupation, is noticing difference in the people that I work with compared to the people that I, you know, grew up with and still socialise with. Do you feel any? Do you notice any difference? Is it is it visible to you in any way? And where do you think you kind of more naturally gravitate? <laughs>
3: I just think I can really drift and just between them.
4: Yeah. I wouldn't
3: say there's one that I naturally. What happens is that when I go home and I'm having conversations with maybe people I used to go to school with or my parents' friends, I find myself cringing a bit. <laughs> but only because <laughs> only because it's it's things that you that should be cringe worthy. You know, talking about like going on skiing holidays or this person's second house or da 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 da. Like, that is cringeworthy, especially as um, none of that stuff is for if you're born into that. You're not getting any of that because of your own merit. Like, it's just given to you. So, yeah.
0: Um, Is there anything that I've missed that you'd like to say?
3: I kind of just wanted to shout out, like, my boss, Jim, who hired me, because, like, he is the only reason, not the only reason, but he is a huge part of, like, why I'm so happy right now and like how I've got to like realize what I wanted to do it is actually it's crazy to think how different my mindset was and where I was six months ago before he hired me
0: so Lily super interesting person I wonder what you make of her and also maybe what you'd make of one of your own daughters becoming a plumber
1: Uh, I'll admit, you know, it would have worried me probably five years ago. But interestingly, reading your books taught me this. I think you say explicitly in one of your books, you'd much prefer your children became bricklayers and really enjoyed it than went into something higher status in a conventional sense, but had a miserable time.
0: I do say that. Thank you so much for reading my books.
1: No, exactly. I remember reading that and going, he's absolutely right, you know.
0: Rory, listen, do you feel that if you were introducing your daughter to friends or talking to friends about one of your daughters and she was a plumber or a plasterer. Do you feel like you'd need to add that sentence with some caveat about why?
1: Yeah, you probably would. I'm eccentric enough that people would probably think it was okay. And it might be that Lily's parents are posh enough that they can get away with it. Which is, in other words, this is what our daughter wants to do. Why on earth will we interfere with that?
0: Can I come back to your kids? So did you, you sent your kids to independent school?
1: Uh, Yeah, Um, I actually live in Kent where there are grammar schools and um, the 11 plus was such a ridiculous system. You know, I'd originally thought, right, let's go uh, to grammar schools. But the level of competition around the 11 plus, by the way, is insane. So it used to be meritocratic. But now if you don't spend a few grand on tuition for the exam, your child doesn't stand a chance.
0: But you were concerned about them ending up at secondary modern school?
1: Probably, yes. Yes. Uh, Whether that's the education or whether it's peer group or whether it's setting aspirations high. Yeah, that's probably fair. Yeah, I think that's fair.
0: But don't you think, I mean, it is is interesting because the secondary modern would have given them a broader understanding of the lives of normal and ordinary people. Yeah. And they've got a pretty advantaged dad anyway. So chances are they'll probably do okay. So I wonder what the fundamental concern there is.
1: It is, and, and I think people instinctively understand it, that having a kid who's got a load of rich friends is a significant advantage, because one of them is probably yeah. going to open up, up, up an opportunity to you later in life.
0: Let's hear from Dr. Vanda Viporska. She's Executive Director of the Equality Trust.
2: I grew up in a working class background, single parent family in the northwest. And at the age of 11, I was lucky enough to get a scholarship to an independent girls school. And that really transformed my life. It's not that you're ashamed of where you come from, but you notice the differences. And, you know, it's a typical thing of thinking, knowing what cutlery to use or knowing, you know, what wine to choose and all of those sort of middle class affectations in a sense of, of, you know not drinking instant coffee anymore and all of that sort of stuff. It could be, that could be just a generational thing, but you know, you, you acquire these sort of accepted tastes and you, before you know it, you know, you're doing all these sorts of things that you probably might've despised when you're a teenager.
0: That is one of the really interesting issues I wanted to discuss with you at a societal level is the sort of social mobility narrative creates this world in which we can disproportionately reward those, handful of people from working class backgrounds that make it in some sense and punish or look down on those that don't what's the solution to that problem if you can think of one I mean it's not it's a really difficult question but how do we kind of navigate our way through that
2: Well, I think it's it is going back to the real basics of, you know, health inequalities and education as well, because if we had a decent education system that was fully funded and enabled everybody to have those chances, then we wouldn't need that narrative of social mobility. So, you know, it's, it's really a deeper structural issue, isn't it, to try and solve. But I think also we don't do ourselves any favours by pointing to those people and saying, you know, look, they've done it. So why can't you?
3: Yeah. you know, It's the
2: sort of rags to riches type story, isn't it? And we have to remember that these people are exceptions. They're not the rule.
0: No. So do you think um, do you think class still has a, a meaning or a resonance amongst the population in a way that it that it once did?
2: Yeah, I think class is really important. And I think it's it's even more important in a sense now that people are trying to pit, you know, identity against class and failing to realise that, you know what, you can be black and working class or Asian and working class and you can be white and working class. And actually, you know, working class people have probably got more in common than than different ethnic groups or, you know, however else you want to cut it. So this whole sort of false binary of, you know, we either look at protected characteristics or we look at economics Mm -hmm. is just absolutely rubbish. We've got to be really careful about how we talk about some of these issues and how we use the data in particular. Mm But I think, you know, we realise now that especially in the light of COVID, in the light of these huge inequalities in terms of working practices and, and jobs and occupations, that there's still a huge battle to be fought in terms of class. Because we've, what we've seen is the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. And if that isn't a class issue, then I don't know what is.
0: Yeah, it was funny. You just—you reminded me of that. You know that classic racist comment that people always used to say. Some of my best friends are black. I wonder—did you think the same applies to class? Some of my best friends are working class. Do you sort of think that people can use that as almost like a a sort of badge of honor in some sense?
2: I'm not sure about that, but I think in terms of you know, I had a conversation with a friend of mine a couple of months ago who said to me, you know, by what token do you think you're still working class now? And I kind of sat back and I thought, oh, I feel really offended. And then I thought about it and I thought, there are very few aspects of my life now that are working class, but I still feel like I identify as someone who's working class. But the reality is I'm, I'm not anymore. Um, so, you know, I think there's, there's more of an issue in terms of people who were working class and have sort of moved up, for want of a better word, um, thinking about, well, how do we still see each, how do we still see ourselves?
0: So are some of your best friends working class? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that you might still be able to use the term, because mine are too, right? I mean, that's the thing I think. But I noticed that a lot of people, because of the narrative around success and status, they kind of do, as we said before, distance themselves from you know the people that they once were. And there isn't anything or any aspects of their life that you could tangibly say were still working class.
2: Yeah, and I think it's also about how we support um, movements of working class issues that are coming more to the fore. So, you know, things like working class people in publishing and working class academic groups and working class writers, you know, we can support all of those things as well. And I think to some extent, it's an, it's also about geography, isn't it? Because, you know, that classic thing about becoming middle class is going away to the university, and then never really going back to where you came from. So, you know, you enter a different social and geography, ge- geographical environment, and that removes you from, you know, where you came from.
0: So, Rory, I wonder what you make of Vander and what she had to say about her transition from working class to middle class. I think it's worth yeah.
1: acknowledging that for some people, that transition is quite painful because if it means essentially you lose your old friends and you find yourself with nothing in common with the people you grew up with, you know, people from established middle class backgrounds don't have to experience any of that identity loss. And I think there is an identity loss you know, and it varies. It might be greater for men than for women sometimes. I don't know.
0: Let me just say that, um yeah, so the evidence on that is suggestive of what you've just said, is that um, there was a big program in the US called Moving to Opportunities Program, where they basically took people from working class neighborhoods and moved them into more affluent neighborhoods. And, you know, again, this is a gross generalization of the evidence, but the girls, by and large, did all right. You know, they kind of, you know, those that wanted to read books and be learned, they actually did pretty well from that change. The boys, on the other hand, struggled, many of them, right, because they came from working class backgrounds where they kick a ball around, smash the odd window. Um, and then they've moved to these areas where they have to, you know, act proper. Um, and they've lost a bit of themselves in that change. I'm going to move on now to our Twitter surveys. You know, every week, Rory, we put out some questions and we get these very kind And crazy people on Twitter to uh, answer our surveys. Um, Kind, obviously. Um, And one of the questions we asked this week was what best defines someone's social class? And they had a choice between their jobs or their hobbies. Um, And I was interested to see that about 60% of people said hobbies and only 40% of people said jobs. So I wonder what you make of that, because that goes back to our discussion earlier about taste, really, doesn't it?
1: It's interesting you mention hobbies because, of course, those change. If you take football, now bear in mind I grew up in Wales where rugby is the mass sport. And football was a working-class hobby when I was a kid, and suddenly the middle class got into it sometime around the 90s. You mentioned earlier in one of the talks that you never met a middle-class bodybuilder. And there are certain hobbies which tend to get defined as tending to one class or another, and there are some hobbies which are just monstrously expensive. But it's probably a safer definition now than
0: job. Or is it? And that's a really important question. So a couple of things on that is It is interesting you mentioned rugby. So I went to university in Swansea at 18 from London or just outside. And uh, rugby was a posh kid's sport. I mean, we didn't, we didn't play at school. Um, that was only played by the private schools. And I went to South Wales and you can't help but get sucked into it because everybody's mad about it. So I become this rugby union fan and I went home and it's like, everyone's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? You turned into some posh wanker. Um, I was like, no, because it's very different in South Wales. So uh, that's, that's one observation. But the other thing I was going to say is that um, there's been some work done recently by one of my colleagues at LSE, Sam Friedman, and a colleague at Oxford. And they've looked at what people in Who's Who um, report as hobbies. And it's exactly what you just said, is that like in the old days, they would put croquet in all these sports that rich people do. But now they say they go to the football. And, and I wonder how much of I mean of that's actually true, or whether they're wanting to signal that they participate in hobbies that would otherwise be associated with working class people.
1: I always tease my daughter, who's at Manchester University, and is a bit of a lefty. If I want to threaten her, I said, look, if you don't book your train ticket tomorrow to come home, I'll send you a Fortnum's hamper. OK, <laughs> and that's actually a threat, OK, because if she had to go into reception and there was a massive great box there with Fortnum & Mason on it, her street cred would be totally dead in the water. So it's a very weird kind of threat. I'm going to out you, basically, as a rich middle class kid.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: And um, it wouldn't work with my other daughter, nice. who'd be delighted. But the the the, the, the Manchester daughter would, would be terrified by that prospect. <laughs>
0: I want to move on to our next survey question because this one asked about being successful at work and whether social class nowadays plays more of a role than it once did or less of a role. And really interestingly, only about a third of our respondents thought it matters more now and two thirds thought it matters less now. And I'm interested in this because there are some good data showing that the association between the parents' income and the child's education has actually got tighter over the last two or three decades. So the responses to this question are actually in contrast, it seems to me, to what the evidence suggests. I just wonder what, what you thought about that difference.
1: Well, you could argue that we've created a false meritocracy around the educational performance as a proxy for merit. Now, actually, I would say that in a lot of jobs, how well you do at a university degree, whether you get a one or not, is has very, very little predictive value for how valuable you're going to be as an employee. But we like it because it looks meritocratic. And so that really worries me because I think what we do is we use the educational system as a way to pretend that our snobbery is now entirely meritocratic and justified, whereas once it was ludicrous.
0: Thank you, Rory. Once again, I'm still not clear about all of this. I need to talk to someone who's done some serious academic research in the area to help me make my mind up. I'm going to talk to my colleague at the LSE, Sam Friedman. He's a sociologist, and he's written a brilliant book about class called The Class Ceiling, Why It Pays to be Privileged.
4: I think part of the issue here is that some of our biases around class aren't really unconscious. They might not be acknowledged in public in, uh, in polite society, but in the kind of interviews I've conducted over the last decade, I suppose, they tend to come out eventually, right, um, about people's what I would call kind of misrecognition Of certain kind of classed behaviours as markers of merit or markers of intelligence or markers of sophistication. So whether that's your accent, your self-presentation, the words you use, your taste, your lifestyle, your humour. I think as academics, we might be able to take a step back and see that these things are fairly arbitrary, um, that your accent clearly doesn't act as a good indicator of how well you might be able to do your job but I think people routinely make these kind of judgments in settings that matter in the workplace in universities um, so I think it's partly that maybe there's a sense in which some of the biases around around class are, are conscious even if not acknowledged publicly
0: fascinating I'm really proud of the fact that institutions like the LSD are doing all they can to get kids from working-class backgrounds to come to LSE and these elite universities, as they're called. You know, that's a great thing, of course. We want to see more working-class kids going to university. I don't think anybody would argue with that. It just feels a little disappointing and a missed opportunity almost if we take those kids and turn them into middle-class graduates so that in the end, everybody's basically the same by the time they've gone through the three years at university. First of all, do you you agree that that's a shame? And secondly, if you do, what, what we might to address it
4: it has real kind of costs for the individual in terms of their identity and i you know i've done lots of work on this where you kind of track the kind of emotional well, kind of hidden injuries to some extent that forcing people into that kind of identity mutation um, brings about and the fact that you know often leaves people with this sense of dislocation from both their origin and their destination i've talked about this a bit as a kind of feeling of cultural homelessness that you can sometimes get um and that you know from from a certain point of view it's not necessary right it doesn't if, if, if we agree that some a lot of these things if this cultural baggage is kind of arbitrary then it shouldn't be part of uh of, of, of what's necessary um in terms of how you solve that i mean it's really tough right because you you've really got to interrogate some of that what we mean by talent what we mean by merit um and i think that often starts with having a frank conversation a bit like we're having now but that's quite difficult in lots of occupations or elite universities because people want to hold on to these things
0: so we would be talking a lot about elite occupations we talk about lsc and good jobs and stuff which is all great you know that's the kind of thing that you want Many people to go into and aspire to, and but of course, not everyone's going to make it. And I, I do have a question I want to ask you about social mobility because it's kind of almost taken for granted that it's a good thing, right? Um, that of course, working class kids should be able to become successful and to become middle class. But I want to I want to talk about maybe some of the possible downsides of that, um, and starting not least with the kind of suggestion therein that sort of almost anyone can make it if only they work hard enough or have the right opportunities to, which enables us to very richly reward those successful working class people that make it and at the same time punish and blame and make feel bad those that don't.
4: No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, Michael Sandel calls this a meritocratic hubris, you know, this sort of, and I think there's a, there's a real danger of it um and i've become more aware of it now sitting on the the government social mobility commission that often you know the the go to in organisations is oh well let's have a profile of somebody or let's get the keynote speaker to be uh, a paul dolan right somebody who's who's made it and then they they get up and it's supposed to be this kind of inspiring notion that if you know that the the subtext is if 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 i can do it anyone can And um, as you say, I think one of the real concerns with this uh, and more generally, even the work that I've done is you is this kind of fetishization of the top. Um, and and I think, you know, I'm becoming more and more aware of how kind of short sighted that is in a way and how it inadvertently acts to sort of add further kind of stigma or a sense of lacking in those who have perfectly legitimate reasons for wanting to do working class jobs. I think
0: one thing we need to do to, to overcome some of these challenges is to get for me it's at least to get middle class people to really properly fucking understand that lots of working class people don't want to be middle class, that they don't want to have the hobbies and the interests and the values that middle class people have. They do want they do aspire. They 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 want to do well in life however that might be measured but they don't want to become middle class and I think that's 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 the biggest hurdle for me or there are many but that feels like it's one of the biggest ones it's a real genuine appreciation on the part of the middle class that lots of working class people don't want to be like them.
4: You're right it's the key thing and the problem I suppose is that whether conscious or not those from middle class backgrounds have a relative advantage in a a kind of ease uh, from their backgrounds through to their um, understanding of these types of environments that makes it quite hard for them to want to Mm. um, really interrogate that. And I think, you know, the best way I've found, you know, in terms of going into those boardrooms in front of those, you know, usually men, white men from very privileged backgrounds, is just showing them, data that's kind of irrefutable about for example you know the fact that people from working class backgrounds earn significantly less even when they are performing better in those firms own performance metrics and you i think you if you can dislodge that yeah uh, that belief that things are fine and the meritocracy is operating fine thank you very much then i think you possibly can start to have the conversation you want um but it's the, you're, you're absolutely right, it's the key thing and it's the thing that um, is hardest to dislodge and needs, needs innovative interventions at various levels, I think, to tackle.
0: Well, one thing that you've reminded me to do now is to, is to plead to the LSE, of course, that they should be paying me more money because of my working class background. I'm clearly disadvantaged by about 13%, isn't it, compared to mine? My- 13%. 16%, 16%, even more, 16%. Take note, LSE, please. Um, I just got one final question for you, Sam, which is a really like sort of personal one, I suppose, really, yeah. about what, what, what got you into this? Why are you interested in this?
4: Yeah, no, it's a key question. Um, when I was growing up, I was brought up in Bristol, um, very class segregated city, and my best mate at school was uh, from a very working class background and, you know, you make these sort of friendships uh, about, around 11 or 12. This sort of stuff doesn't really come into play, right? Um, class difference didn't really come into mm. play. We, we, we forged an incredibly close friendship and we were kind of inseparable until we were about 14. Um, and then the class differences between our families became really, really strong. Uh, I was from a privileged background. And, you know, it started to play out in the way our relationship and our trajectories were kind of starting to go in terms of me being sort of academic. The school we were in starting to kind of stigmatize my friend in various ways for, for his lack of interest in academic achievement. And, you know, problems between our kind of families in terms of their them being able to get on with one another. And I just, I, it really... It sort of made me aware of how ridiculous um and prevalent and sort of sort of hidden below, you know, what we talk about in everyday life, class difference, class boundaries and mm. class snobbery is.
0: Just one final thing, Sam, before we go though. I, I just just you know, it just occurred to me that I should ask you whether you're still mates with your underprivileged working class oik friend.
4: Yeah, I am actually. And I mean, interestingly, in the context of uh, social mobility, he's now, you know, he runs a very successful business. He's a sort of, you know, um, but yeah, I am still friends with him. Although I think, you know, it's definitely interesting that there's a sort of, you know, it's the residue of teenage friendship that keeps us going forward. I think in almost every other way, we are completely different people now.
0: I've particularly enjoyed these conversations around social class because they're so close to my own heart. We know that social class is judged all the time. Unconscious racial and gender biases are now widely accepted. But we still have such a long way to go with class. And as Sam Friedman reminded us, it's also conscious bias. See, I know I'm judged for my accent, my tattoos, my bodybuilding. I've seen it firsthand on many occasions. Class is so ingrained in the judgments that we make about other people. I think it was really interesting that Rory wants his kids to have good networks. I completely understand that. But you see, for me, it's more important that my kids have normal friends, that they understand wider society. I think this speaks to many of the implicit class value judgments that we make. It's interesting that 60 years after Michael Young, the British sociologist, satirised the rise of the meritocracy, that we still seem to be so committed to the idea that the cream rises to the top. I can actually remember cold top milk, and the cream never tasted that nice. See, there still remains this myth around social mobility. Even with the advent of robots and AI, we're always gonna need supposedly low-skilled jobs, such as cleaners, as well as the high-skilled ones, such as surgeons. This means that we need to pay much greater attention to improving the working conditions, pay, and status of the supposedly low-skilled jobs. I have to say I don't like that term very much because many of those occupations still require skill. It's just that we don't judge them as well as high-status jobs. The jobs that are supposedly aspirational do pay more money, but they don't always make people happy. I've always found it bizarre that most people would see it as a good thing when the son of a relatively happy builder becomes a less happy banker. And I'm so pleased that Rory now agrees with me. When we talk about social mobility, what we really mean is market mobility. We don't mean mobility in terms of better social relationships, more volunteering, or being more involved in family life. We basically mean getting a better job. This rather narrow definition also promotes the notion that anyone can make it if they work hard enough. I became a professor at the LSE, so any working class bloke can. And if they don't, well that's down to their own lack of talent and effort. This narrative simply props up the existing system and its gross inequalities. Instead of our obsession with social mobility, and the fetishisation of the top as Sam neatly put it, we should focus on social justice. On ensuring that the milk tastes nice throughout the whole bowl. This means that we must afford respect to all essential occupations. One of the things that the pandemic has taught us is that the essential jobs, the key workers, are not the ones done by those who earn the most money or have the highest status. We need to remember that in a post-COVID world. If we can't afford to pay people more, we can at least afford them greater respect. In all of this, we must accept that we don't have a level playing field, and we probably never will. I'm sure you won't be surprised to know that there's a very strong correlation between a parent's and a child's height. But perhaps you'd be a little more surprised to know that exactly the same strong correlation exists between a parent's income and a child's income. The likelihood that someone who starts off in the lowest 10% of the income distribution will reach the highest 10% is the same as the likelihood that a father who's five foot six will have a son who grows up to be six foot one. It can happen, but it's fucking unlikely. If you want to be tall, Be born to tall parents. If you want to be rich, be born to rich ones. You see, in the end, whatever your background, we must accept that how life turns out will be mostly determined for you and not by you. I'm alert to the downsides of this. We know that the belief in agency drives progress, for example. And so as with most things, there's a balance to be struck. As with most things, nothing is either truly duck or rabbit. Just going back to that guy that chastised me at the festival for swearing. I've thought about him a lot. And I've come to the conclusion that it's fucking wrong. Swearing is who I am. I only ever use it as a means of emphasis, at least in work. We've got two kids a son who takes after his dad, he's a proper swearer. We've got a daughter who hates it. Different people, different values, different behaviours. They're living their authentic selves. That's the kind of class of society that I'd like to see. I'm Professor Paul Dolan. That was the Duck Rabbit Podcast and it was a Mother Come Quickly production. This podcast is part of the Shaping the Post-Covid World Initiative at the LSE. Thanks so much to all my guests, and I'll be back with another series soon. In the meantime, please do get in touch on Twitter at Prof. Paul Dolan with anything you might want discussed.